0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So today there's a lot of talk about rights, as there has been for quite some time. People will oftentimes talk about uh, their right to freedom of speech, or freedom of assembly, or right to religious liberty or they will oftentimes talk about their rights in relation to let's say some agreement they've made with other people. Uh, What I wanna explore, however, is is, those are gonna definitely come up in in the discussion, but I wanna uh, explore a deeper philosophical question. Assuming there's such a thing as a natural right, and I'll have something to say about that in, in a minute, uh, assuming there's such a thing as a natural right, um, where do they come from? Is there any way that we can justify it or ground it in something outside of our simple agreements with each other or the power of the state? So oftentimes people will, when they disagree with, let's say, some kind of public policy, or, or they think that society should change, they will often say things like there ought to be a law, right? So what I wanna raise is the question, how do we know what ought to be a law? That is to say, why is it that the government should if it it, it protect our rights uh, and and rights that the government has yet yet to recognize? So uh, what is a natural right? Uh, A natural right is a right that one has by nature that a government is obligated to recognize. So uh, think about the way in which we make judgments all the time about, uh, let's say you may see something in the news about somebody who is treated badly and you say that they're not treated in a way consistent with their rights. And it doesn't really move you if somebody says, yeah, but." That's what their government says is okay, right? You would say, no, it's still wrong. Uh, That government should recognize that right. So a natural right is a kind of right uh, that we believe a person has by nature, right? So, and a right is a kind of claim that we make on other people to a certain extent. So if I say I have a right to life, it means you have an obligation not to kill me. You have a duty to do something, right? Then there are other sense in which I have a right in a way that doesn't require uh, a duty on the part of you, except maybe not to interfere. Like I have a right to watch um, old reruns of Star Trek, the next generation, right? Um, But I I don't have an obligation to do it, right? Unless I promised my wife that we'd watch it together, right? That's not gonna happen uh, usually, um, so, um, so, but if you think about the language of rights, a right seems to be the sort of thing that can only be justified if it is necessary in order to establish some good. So think about the sort of ordinary rights that we often think about, uh, in our culture, in our society, and even internationally, something like, um, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, association, those kind of rights or those kind of claims that we make assume that there's a certain good that we, that the right allows us to acquire, right? So why would speech be good? Well, speech is good because we're beings that can communicate, right? And communication is good because it can lead to things like cooperation and friendship. And those turn out to be goods as well, right? And so when we think about obstructing somebody's right, we think that we are interfering with the, a power that, they, that a person has to act in a way to acquire that good. Right, so in a sense, natural rights depend on something called the natural law. The natural law, Now, know, what, what is, uh, here's a, a real kind of simple pithy argument, or not really an argument. Uh, it, it, it's more or less the, the, the kinds of propositions that a person would have to believe in order to believe there's such a thing as a natural law. Um, there are some universal and immutable truths. Human beings have the capacity to know these truths. Human nature is the basis on which these moral truths are known. Now. When I say that people know it, it doesn't mean that they're conspicuously aware of it, right? So you can actually know something you don't know you know. So let me give you an example. Years ago, uh, I used to teach at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, UNLV. In fact, I grew up in Las Vegas. Uh, Actually, no one really grows up in Las Vegas. You just get older. Uh, But I grew up in Las Vegas, got hired after I earned my PhD at UNLV, and I taught a course, uh, actually, Uh, course on it called Introduction to Ethics, and uh, a a student in the class, uh, when we were going over the issue of moral relativism, uh, actually it was more or less, it wasn't so much the issue of relativism in terms of morality, but just the general question of relativism, can we actually know whether uh, there's true things, can we know truth, and of course, moral truth would be a subset of that. So, She, in the middle of my lecture, raised her hand and she asked, why is the truth important? And I answered, do you want the true answer or the false one? Now think about that. The very asking of the question assumed that the truth is in fact important. She wants the true answer, right? Her mind is ordered towards that end, right? So it's a kind of weird question to ask, right? So if you think about it, there's actually a moral aspect to this as well. She's a, she thinks that I have an obligation to give her a true answer, right? Or at least an answer that I think is reasonably good, and, good and, and, and compelling, right? But that means there's an obligation that I have to her as another human being, right? So supposing I answered her question by saying, shut up and sit down, right? She would be offended by that. Why would she be offended? Because she's a human person who should be treated with dignity and respect. So her offense to that would actually uh, kind of uh, provoke in her a set of other moral intuitions that a lot of us would say is just part of the natural law, right? Once we realize the sorts of beings we are, we expect other people to treat us in a particular way. So to kind of give you some concrete examples uh, of this, think about um, something like the belief that courage is a virtue. Uh, that seems to be a, an almost universal and immutable truth about us that human beings have a capacity to know. So wh- why would something like courage be a virtue? Well, think about the sorts of beings we are, right? We're rational beings, we have reason, right? But we also have emotions, right? And emotions can either, either move you, especially in a, in, a, in a situation of adversity, you could be afraid, right? Uh, but you also have an inclination to do what is right, right And so when you act in a way to advance a good in the face of adversity, you act courageously. And so if you think about the sorts of beings we are, courage actually makes sense as a virtue. If we were just like let's say Spock on Star Trek like I, I don't know why I, I I don't talk about Star Trek often it just happens to be uh, <laughs> Uh, so Spock on Star Trek you know he's perfectly logical although he's half human. Uh, by the way, I was at a law conference once where I was corrected about uh, about Spock uh, I gave an example of, 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 of Spock coming to Earth and I asked whether Spock should be treated as a 14th Amendment person under our Constitution and I, I referred to Spock as a Vulcan and the law professor who was my commentator said he was half Vulcan so I, I wanna just, so let's say Sarek, his father. Uh, <laughs> supposing Sarek, perfectly logical, no emotion, right? So it seems that something like courage wouldn't be a virtue for beings that were purely rational, right, or, or had no sort of, conne- their decision making, had no connection to their, their sort of physical movements in any way, right? So another example. Uh, of of how the natural law gets cashed out. We often justify positive law. Positive law is just sort of ordinary human law, like the the revised statutes of Texas. Uh, We often justify positive law based on the natural law. Uh, Governments issue statutes that prohibit murder, theft, assault, and child abandonment, and make policies that they believe advance the common good, such as compulsory public education, policing, and national defense. These are all sort of examples of the kind of cashing out of natural law principles. Uh, It's the natural law that Martin Luther King Jr. appealed to uh, or had in mind uh, when he wrote in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail that an unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law, implying that there is a non-artifactual ethical standard by which we can judge our conduct as well as the civil and criminal laws of our nation. And this is a kind of another version of uh, there ought to be a law, you know, to reflect this moral truth. So, without this sort of reasoning, it's difficult to make sense of documents such as the Declaration of Independence or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, or some of the comments made uh, by. Uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson in his opening statement, the Nuremberg Trials. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to uh, uh, read uh, his opening uh, comments. Uh, It's worth reading. It's also worth uh, noting that at the time, there were a a faction of people that actually were against the Nuremberg Trials, not because they thought uh, the Nazi and Japanese war criminals ought not to be punished. They just thought that it was a bad idea to uh, try them based on what they said was post facto law. Their idea was just take them out to the black forest and shoot them. But the Jackson faction <laughs> uh, and those that agreed and, and the allied powers thought, this is an opportunity to show the world what it means to have due process, to allow people to defend themselves, right? And ultimately Jackson is opening comments appeals to something he calls the law above the law and he refers to what the Nazis and Japanese did as crimes against humanity, right? There's a kind of appeal to the natural law. And even the new atheists seem to agree. So here, Richard Dawkins, this is from his book, The God Delusion. Do you guys know where that cartoon is from? South Park, (laughs) one of my favorite episodes actually. Uh, the atheist view is correspondingly life-affirming and life-enhancing, while at the same time never being tainted with self-delusion, wishful thinking, or the wingering self-pity of those who feel that life owes them something. Uh, so what Dawkins is saying here is that we have kind of an obligation to treat ourselves and others in a, in a way that's consistent with our flourishing. I mean, it sounds like he's actually relying on kind of fundamental intuitions of the human good. In fact, there's a there's a, a wonderful passage in uh, uh, in the God Delusion, where he criticizes uh, this uh, uh, paleontologist named Kurt Wise. Kurt uh, Professor Wise um, had studied at Harvard under Stephen Jay Gould, the great paleontologist, and uh, Wise grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home and believed in young earth creationism. He believed that the earth was only 10,000 years old. And what happened after Wise studied with uh, 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 Gould, he didn't change his mind, he kept the same view. And in his own uh, brief memoir, Wise talks about how, because he did not reject his young earth creationist view, he had to give up a lifetime of research at a major research university. And, it, and so in his book, The God Delusion, Dawkins laments that. And he says, this is why I hate religion. You've got someone as gifted as Kurt Wise and he's throwing away his career. And what's interesting about that analysis though, is that it assumes that human beings like Kurt Wise who have certain gifts have obligations to treat their gifts in a way consistent with their flourishing which sounds a lot like Dawkins is assuming that human beings are designed, right? Uh, So in any event, the point is that that it seems at least in terms of Dawkins, it's kind of inescapable these intuitions that we have that seem to be consistent with traditional views of the natural law. Uh, One more example from Christopher Hitchens who is a much more um, flamboyant writer uh, than, than Dawkins and actually a much better writer. I enjoyed Christopher Hitchens, although I didn't agree with him on many things. Uh, he says, violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in, the, in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive toward children, organized religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience, right? So, so here, Hitchens is saying that human beings have a conscience that is to say there's something deep within us that should be triggered when we see and experience or maybe engage in these activities that he has condemned right which sounds like the natural law right all right so that's a kind of real quick sort of connection between natural rights and the natural law so now i want what i want to do is just go over a couple of observations about the nature of the natural moral law. So what do I mean about the, nat- what, when I say the nature of the natural moral law, what I mean is what, what what is it, right? So if I say there's a chair, right? And you say, well, what, what is it? I go, well, it's this physical thing made out of plastic so that human beings can sit in it, right? Uh, or if I, let's say, if you ask me what is a human being and, I, and I'm a follower of Aristotle, I will say a human being is a rational animal, right? So what's the moral law like? What's its nature? So here I'm gonna go over four observations that comes from a, a book I co-authored uh, nearly, tw- actually 23 years ago now called Relativism Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. And the, 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 the uh, section that I'm relying on is actually was section written by my co-author uh, Gregory Kokel. Um, so one observation if the moral law exists. It is not physical it's not something that you can empirically verify let's say like uh, a hand sanitizer which you know we have them everywhere right. Um, uh, physical things w- whether quarks galaxies or the Rolling Stones if you have the Rolling Stones there. Uh, take up space and can be measured and quantified. The moral law, on the other hand, isn't known in that way. In fact, the very examples that I gave earlier, none of them appeal to anything in the physical world that you could measure, right? I mean, if you're looking for the natural law that way, uh, here I'll quote or paraphrase uh, the great uh, country singer Johnny Lee, you're looking for the natural law in all the wrong places. Uh, It's it's not going to be there. Secondly, uh, the moral law, the natural moral law is a form of communication. All I'm saying here is that it's got cognitive content. Uh, we, we, when we, it simply means that when we grasp a moral truth, we sense that something has been communicated to us that we had not fully understood before. Uh, this can be in the forms of imperatives, like one ought to keep one's promises, or in the form of commands, keep your promises, or in the form of descriptions, like true knowledge is good. There are all different ways in which we can grasp the, an aspect of the natural moral law, right? And we understand what it means. It doesn't mean, by the way, that people aren't going to disagree. Uh, uh, but at this high level of abstraction, we can, we can grasp it. Third, if the moral uh, the moral law has an incumbency to it, that is, it has a force. We can actually feel prior to any behavior, there's an oughtness to morality. Uh, I suspect we've all felt this before, right? Um, A sense that we ought to do something, right? Uh, You get that phone call, maybe at 2 a.m. Hi, Frank, I have a flat tire, can you help me? Right? Now you can actually just look at the caller ID, (laughs) right? But in the old days, you actually had to pick up the phone, right, or it would ring forever right? Uh, Now you can just, you know, you've already got pre-written messages for you, right? Uh, But, but, you know, that sense that you ought to do something, right? Um, That oughtness, that incumbency to morality. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about it in his uh, book, Mere Christianity. In the first five chapters, he talks about how human beings have this sort of weird relationship to the natural moral law. We realize what we ought to do, and we realize that we never do it. Or not that we never do it, but oftentimes we don't do it, right? And that's the kind of incumbency. Now, this leads us to um, kind of the, third, the, the, the uh, what happens after we, let's say, disobey the moral law. Uh, there's a sense of guilt, of deep moral, deep discomfort, um, So only sociopaths succeed in overcoming their conscience completely. In fact, you know, an interesting uh, study was done several years ago. I actually went over it with my class. I'm teaching this semester at Baylor, a course called Contemporary Moral Problems. And I'm having them read a a book that I had not read until last year by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind. He's a moral psychologist. And one of the things that, that Haidt brings up in the book is studies have been done on people that have lost um, uh, certain brain functions that are connected to emotion. And so those individuals are, are are fine in every way, except for they don't have any emotional feelings. And you think, well, that would be, a, you'd be a perfect, um, you know, rational, ethical judge, right? Because you won't be influenced by emotion. You'll be like Spock turns out, though, that these these people wind up actually being horrible moral uh, judges judges is because so much of our inclination to help people really arises from our emotions. So emotions are kind of a shortcut way to indicate in some circumstances what we ought to do. So if that's gone, you know, you not only lose guilt, you lose the impetus to actually act sometimes in certain circumstances, something I had not known about until a reading height. So um, let's, um, let's just review the, the four observations about the natural moral law. If, if the moral law exists, it is not physical. The moral law is a form of communication. All that means it has cognitive content. The moral law has an incumbency to it. And violating the moral law results in deep discomfort. So given the, na- the nature of, uh, of the natural moral law, does it require a divine source? And here, uh, I'm gonna again, refer to the, the book I co-authored with Greg um, Kokel, and then my, my own book, Politics for Christians, my last chapter deals with natural rights and natural law. And I so much of what I'm gonna tell you uh, this evening comes from uh, those two works, that kind of very shorthand way. So, I'm gonna just mention three options here and uh, options I'm not going to be addressing uh, uh, are things like social contract theory, um, certain other ways of looking at an evolutionary account of morality. So I'm not gonna, just because of time. Uh, But what I've done is I've I've broken down to three different options. Uh, One, uh, the moral law is relative. That is to say, it's merely culturally relative. that that uh, what morality is is simply um, uh, rules that have developed over time, uh, it's sort of like the rules of, of monopoly, right? Um, secondly, that the moral law is a mere accident, a product of chance. And third, the moral law is grounded in a transcendent mind. So first, let's just, we, we can actually go quickly to the first one. The moral law is, 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 rel- is relative. Um, that's implicitly denied by contemporary atheists as we've already seen. And I think much of what I said in the first part shows or reveals some of the problems of relativism. Relativism seems to be counter to uh, most of our intuitions about the obligations we have to others. And it turns to be quite cross-cultural, right? So um, you know, no matter where, uh, there are differences, to be sure there are differences even within our own society, right? So think about an issue like abortion where people have deep disagreement about whether abortion ought to be permitted under law or whether it's morally permissible. Uh, what's, 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 what's strange though is that on both sides of the debate, people actually have very similar moral convictions. That is people that support the right to abortion will, will oftentimes argue that the unborn human being is not a full-fledged member of the of the human community that it's not a person. Now what they mean by person is a set of characteristics that we typically associate with mature versions of human beings. So the ability to reason and communicate and so forth. And they argue fetuses lack that so therefore they don't have moral status therefore abortion is permissible. Those that oppose abortion say we agree with you that it is wrong to kill persons without justification. But we think unborn human beings are in fact persons, right? So the disagreement isn't over the principle, whether it's wrong to kill persons without justification. It's over the question of what counts as a person, right? So you'll notice this oftentimes when people rationalize their behavior. The rationalization of behavior is itself a complement to, to the reality of the natural moral law. Right? So if somebody accuses you of being unfair or you accuse someone being unfair or unjust, what they? nobody ever says, yes, I am unjust and I think being unjust is a good thing. What they will typically do is say, no, I'm not unjust, here's why. Right? Even, if they, even if it's something that's not very good in terms of an argument, they still try to justify it in some way. So relativism I don't think succeeds. Um, the second option, which we're going to spend, uh, more time on than, than the others, and that is that, the, uh, that the moral law exists, uh, the natural moral law exists, but it's just simply a product of chance. It's just a brute fact. Now, what is a brute fact? A brute fact is something that just is and requires no explanation. Uh, but it seems to me that something like the moral law, um, is it, it, it's a kind of contingent fact, right? It's not, it's not something that first off has always existed, right? So if you think that there was a time at, at, as, as most people think, uh, as I think, that there was a time which human beings were not on the earth, right? There was no natural moral law then, right? So it at least came into existence at some point, which means that it's a contingent fact. So to simply say it's a brute fact is like sweeping the dirt into the trash can Or under the rug, and then claiming that there's no longer any dirt. Um, In addition to that, um, a moral law that has no ground or justification need not be obeyed. So think about: let you're playing Scrabble, and while playing Scrabble, the letters randomly spell "Go to Baltimore" or "Persevere." Should this command be obeyed? I mean, it looks like something's being communicated to you, right? but you, you'd be foolish to obey you, right? It would be like if you're eating alphabet soup. Supposing you're eating alphabet soup and you've got a, a large enough spoon and it spells your name and your name is Bob. Do you believe your soup is talking to you? No, you, 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 there's no intellectual content to it, right? Now, however, if your name is Nebuchadnezzar and, and the letter spelled Nebuchadnezzar, I, I would you know, immediately go seek out uh, you know, uh, clergy. <laughs> so that would be, uh, you should probably, you know, probably next in line for the, the miracle inquiry, right? That would be something else if, if that happened. Um, so it seems as though, let me go, that, um, uh, that something like go to Baltimore, persevere, shouldn't be obeyed. Just because something looks like a command doesn't mean it really is. Right? So chance might possibly create the appearance of moral command, but since no one is speaking such a command, we can safely ignore it. So it seems to me the brute fact approach um, doesn't really answer. I, th- I think it fundamentally doesn't answer it because um, it's, it's, it, to simply say it's a brute fact doesn't take away from the reality that's a contingent reality. Right? It, 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 it seems to be the sort of thing that calls out for an explanation. Right? All right, what about the second? So the, so I have a, under the second option, I, I have a, a second um, att- attempt to account for the natural moral law, and this is far more sophisticated. Uh, this is uh, the view that the natural moral law is a product of naturalistic evolution. Now, I wanna be clear here. When I say naturalistic evolution, I'm referring to uh, a view that says that, uh, Darwinian evolution is correct, and God doesn't exist, right? So I, I hold the view that there's nothing inconsistent with Darwinian evolution and belief in God. It's a view that I, I defend in my, my most recent book, uh, Never Doubt Thomas, uh, which is, by the way, dedicated to your brother. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, in in that book, I I, I have an extensive uh, discussion of of some of the disputes, uh, at least among Protestant Christians about evolution and creation. So I want to be clear here. What I mean by naturalistic evolution is evolution that is not in any way directed by divine providence, right? So that's what naturalism refers to a view that says that God doesn't exist. So that's what I mean by naturalistic evolution. So. The objection here is is one um, um, that says something like this. Morality is necessary for survival. So for example, prohibitions against adultery, murder, stealing, etc. are the result of social structures that evolve from our genes to help the preservation of the human species. And so over time, human beings become aware of something that they believe is the natural moral law. But... The Darwinian account, at least by two of the thinkers that I'm gonna quote from in a second, uh, Michael Roos and E.O. Wilson, is that it doesn't correspond to any reality. So let me hear a quote from, uh, oh, it's not here. So, okay, so I'll just quote from from the text I have before me. So this article uh, that I'm quoting from by Roos and Wilson, uh, it, it came out, um, in the 1980s, I think in, in the, I think it was in Scientific American, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, it was quite a um, popular article and is used uh, by professors of all over the country to this day in their classes. In fact, I, I'm using it this semester uh, in my contemporary moral problems class. So this is what Roos and Wilson say. The question is not whether biology, specifically our evolution is connected with ethics, but how. As evolutionists, we see that no justification of the traditional kind is possible. That is, sort of the traditional kind, meaning that morality depends on God. Morality, or more strictly our belief in morality, is merely an adaptation put in place to further our reproductive ends. Hence, the basis of ethics does not lie in God's will. Unquote. Now, what they mean here is that that we kind of have... The, we have selfish genes. Our genes wanna pass on, pass on themselves to the next generation, but to the best way to do that is, so, is to have organisms that are altruistic, right? So they would cooperate with each other and uh, we sacrifice for each other. That's the best way to pass on our selfish genes. And in the process of that occurring, over time, human beings start developing what they believe to be a natural moral law. But Roos and Wilson say, it doesn't really correspond to anything. So let me continue. In an important sense, ethics as we understand it is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes to get us to cooperate. It is without external grounding. Ethics is illusory in as much as it persuades us that it has an objective reference. This is the crux of the biological position. Once it is grasped, everything falls into place. So, um, so what Roos and Wilson are saying is that yes, everything that I've said so far about the natural moral law, they agree with insofar as we have an awareness of it. But what they say is that it has no reference to anything real, okay? It's an illusion fobbed on our minds, okay? So what are the problems with this view? I'm gonna go over three problems with this view Um, I don't think it can account for something I I think is very, it's a theory that really focuses on behavior, but most of our moral judgments focus on motive and intent. So so you could be immoral if you tell the truth, but intend to tell a lie. So for example, supposing um, there's a police officer comes to the door here and says, where's Beckwith? We're looking for him. And, uh, but before he does that, I tell you, look, we're, we're in room 310. I'm going to hide in 308. So tell him I'm in 312. Now, supposing though, I go to 308 and I, and I begin not to trust you. I think, huh, I don't think they're going to lie. So I'm going to go to 312. Okay. So what happens is you say he's in 312. intended to deceive the police but now you've actually told the truth but you're still immoral because you intended to deceive on the other hand supposing you say 308 and i've moved over you've told the falsehood but actually you're more virtuous because you didn't intend to deceive um think about the way we judge uh this is an example actually that that lewis c.s lewis uses in mere christianity Uh, uh there's a person on a train and they accidentally trip Somebody, um, the person may be negligent, but we don't think of them as being uh, deeply wicked in comparison to somebody who intentionally tries to trip somebody and doesn't succeed. Right, so you try to trip somebody and then you don't you don't succeed. You're wor- You're a worse person than the person that accidentally trips somebody. So it turns. I mean, I think that that and Wilson, as as a lot of people who write in this area, kind of play down the the importance of uh, of motive and intent when. When in most of us, that actually is, makes all the difference in the world in terms of judging whether a person is good or bad. Uh, a second problem, and it's the problem of why be good tomorrow? So supposing you, you, you say to Roos and Wilson, hey, Roos and Wilson, you guys, you're, I agree with your story. That's the way we got these moral intuitions, and they don't really refer to anything. But I just don't want to follow them. You know, I'm glad that people in the past generally did not commit adultery, but I'm gonna do it. I don't care what they did. I, I'm glad that they did it and allowed me to come into being. But now that I'm here, I'm gonna just violate that moral rule, right? So on what 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 would be the justification for, what duty do you have to obey it? What's the grounding of that duty? So it seems to me that the best that, that the theory gives us is a description It doesn't tell us how, whether we should be good tomorrow, right? And finally, uh, I think it proves too much in this sense. Um, if one's belief in the moral law can be attributed entirely to survival rather than to a real moral law, why not apply the same reasoning to our other beliefs? Now think about it, our minds not only have Belief in the moral law. We also have beliefs that, for example, that we're in this classroom, or that uh, biological science has shown that Darwinian evolution is likely true, right? Or that George Washington was the first president, right? Or that the periodic table is used in chemistry, right? All of these are things that we believe with the same mind that gives us this kind of awareness of a natural moral law. So. What about these other beliefs? Um, Our belief in, let's say, um, uh, art and literature and philosophy, right? And some of the examples I've used before. um, Why not the very cognitive faculties themselves? Um, Perhaps we're deceived about these other things, right? So why is it that just our belief that there's a, a natural moral law is the one thing that we're deceived about? Why not our beliefs about being in this room or that the periodic table applies to chemistry or that uh, poetry is a wonderful form of literary expression, right? These are all things that we believe, right? And yet, why aren't they up to doubt? Now, I think that reason why they they aren't for at least Ruth and Wilson is they already are committed to a naturalistic worldview. They are committed to materialism. And if there's such a thing as a natural moral law, that is that there's this immaterial uh, kind of unchanging universal uh, collection of normative guidelines. That really doesn't fit very well if you believe that all that exists is the physical world. Right? So I think that there's, I think underneath this is an, there's, a, there's a motivation. Uh, and by the way, that's not to say that they're, I mean, I think their view is mistaken, but that's not, that's, I, I'm not saying that that's a reason to reject it entirely. We all do this. That is to say, no matter what worldview we hold, Whenever we come up with things that seem to be inconsistent with that we try to accommodate it in some way by sort of adjusting our other beliefs. All right, Uh, another way to put it. If our biology tricks us into believing that there is a natural moral law, perhaps our biology tricks us into believing that our biology tricks us into believing there's a natural moral law. You see the problem here once you go down that route, then I think it results in a kind of universal skepticism. So option three, the natural moral law is grounded in a transcendent mind. So given that options one and two fail, uh, it must, uh, it seems to me that the the natural moral law has to be uh, grounded in an intelligence, a mind. Um, And here I'm going to go through something very quickly, kind of bypassing about a hundred (laughs) premises, but we we don't have that much time left and I want to open up uh, some time for questions. Um, so only a transcendent mind or a transcendent one, a mind that can by its nature be the source of the natural moral law seems to be the correct answer. So why not a finite mind? It can't be a finite mind. Uh, there, oh, there's more Star Trek. I, uh, there's Q and and Spock and Thor and, uh, Roman gods, uh, or Greek gods. I, I don't know. Uh, so it can't be a finite contingent intelligence, that is, someone like Q or Spock or Thor, because such a being would be contingent, right? And it couldn't have the moral authority within itself. Uh, but in order to ground a moral law, a being has to be the sort of thing that doesn't receive its existence from another. And it seems to me that that just that is consistent with the sort of classical description. Of God. The source of the moral law must be a self existent, perfectly good being who has the juridical authority that requires that we owe him our duty to obey. It seems only fitting to call such a being God. You know, you argue, and I think very persuasively, that we, we we really do believe in this moral law. We assume that it exists, we take it for granted. If the fact is, it is per, its existence even if we assume it implicitly is explicitly denied frequently in contemporary culture? Yeah. Why is that what's going on? Why do we not see what should be obvious? Yeah, good question. I think it has to do with a couple of different factors. I think one factor is, um, I think a kind of naive view of what it means to have a natural moral law. So you have people who think uh, that, To believe in a natural moral law means that you sort of have an instantaneous awareness of the Ten Commandments, (laughs) you know, written out, you know, with Roman numerals in front of them, or I guess Hebrew numerals, right? Uh, And uh, so, but if you read, for example, someone like Aquinas, I mean, what Aquinas says is that, that first off, the natural moral law in and of itself does not give us the whole counsel of God, and, and that the best that we can get from it is an awareness of certain goods to which human beings are ordered, which it explains why human civilizations seem to have so many moral um, uh, views in common. On the other hand, though, because human beings also have this other aspect of our nature, uh, we, have, we, we not only have these passions, we also have um, self-interest, right? And so... These other factors come into play when they sort of get cashed out in, in actual, rough and tumble, uh, human life, right? So, so uh, the expectation is uh, that that because it isn't sort of clean and neat, <laughs> and and that you know you you don't have this sort of awareness of the Ten Commandments written, written in your mind, therefore all everything's relative. So that's why I I, I stressed at the beginning. I didn't begin with. Um, the um, trying to sort of prove that that there are certain, you know, uh, moral uh, laws that everyone should instantly recognize, but appealed at a higher level of abstraction, precisely because of the recognition that uh, that these disagreements arise. But I don't think the disagreements are the result uh, are, are counter to, to or, or count against that belief. So so I think there's a sort of naive view of, of, of sort of human diversity. Um, the other, I think there's, um, I, I, J- John Rist has brought this up. Uh, John Rist who's uh, uh, I think recently retired from Catholic University of America. Uh, he was at, in, I think in Toronto for quite a while, maybe uh, or Ottawa. He's a classicist and philosopher who delivered in 2000, the Aquinas lecture at Marquette just on this question. And so one of the things that Riss says is that uh, the kind of post-enlightenment world in which, um, first off, there's this sort of shift in the way in which God is thought to relate to the world, right? So God then becomes not so much the ground of being, but a kind of uh, greatest being uh, that fills in the gaps of what science can't answer, right? And so you, you get that Plus, uh, so, so a waning confidence uh, or a, a losing confidence in, in belief in God, largely because of, a, 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 I think, unjustified shifts in the concept of God. And then, so you so given the, the fact that, that there's this declining confidence, you get uh, philosophers, uh, people like um, Immanuel Kant, Jeremy Bentham, right? We're going to come up with sort of ways to figure out the moral law without directly appealing to a divine source, right? And so what they see is that these projects, you know, are not entirely successful, right? I mean, people, you know, you, you can be a Kantian or a Benthamite or, you know, to a lesser extent, a Lockean, right? And and, and so, so people see this and they say, well, you know, so the lack of confidence and belief in God, I think the diversity... Uh, Plus, what goes along with that lack of confidence and belief in God is also materialism, right? So you get the sort of Roos Wilson account, right? So if all that exists is matter and the moral law is kind of an immaterial thing, well, you got to find a way to figure out where that goes. So I think it's a cluster of these things. But having said that, though, I I think when you, and I've seen this in the classroom at, at, at Baylor, once you sort of, you know, see that, in fact, the, 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 these intuitions that we have are so universal, I mean, I think, especially if it's presented in a way that takes into consideration these disagreements, I think, I think st- people are more receptive to it.